This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Big interview with me, Patrick Bishop. Well, today we've got a fascinating bonus interview for you. This was initially planned as an insert for our Friday episode last week, but we felt it was so good it deserved its own episode. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Tim Butcher, an old friend who's the author of several amazing books, starting with Blood River, his account of his epic 3,000-kilometre trek in the footsteps of Henry Stanley through the Congo, braving all manner of hardships and dangers. More to the point, he was also the Daily Telegraph's Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem, and in 2006 covered the Israeli war against Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is what we're here to talk about today. Now, Tim, that was a war that lasted 40 days. This one is set to last very much longer. Let's tell us about the background to it, and then perhaps we can move on and talk about what lessons we can learn from that experience and apply them to what's going on in Gaza today. Of course. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a great privilege to be here discussing such a, an important topic and, and, and connecting it to the past. We all know that military men, generals, often fight the last war on today's battlefields. And in some ways, I, I, th- these are lessons that come to my mind when I see what's going on in Gaza today, because that conflagration, that war uh, on the uh, Lebanon-Israel border in the summer of 2006, it has a direct impact, I would say, because we learned some very important lessons there. The background was that uh, Israel and Lebanon, of course, had been there'd been uh, skirmishes and fighting, and indeed full-blooded invasions across the border for a number of years. And the pertinent parts are the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, on the south, defending Israel, and effectively only Hezbollah on the northern side. And they were at loggerheads. They would been they had a, a long history of fighting, but had been relatively calm. And I say relatively calm because elsewhere. In Gaza, there'd been, guess what, border skirmishes in the summer of 2006. And this will sound horribly familiar, a border raid where militants came across the border in tunnels and killed some soldiers, attacked a tank position, killed two, but grabbed one alive. His name, Gilad Shalit. And he was taken into the the worst nightmare for an Israeli commander. They've lost one of their soldiers. He's alive in Gaza. So... The, the parallels are already there, but this is only one hostage, one individual disappears into Gaza and Israel punches, it, Israel sends troops in, and as so often in Gaza, it's punching at ghosts. It can't find Gilad Shelley clearly, but it goes in hard, it goes in on a military operation. And meanwhile, on the northern border, Hezbollah sees see an opportunity. And just three weeks after one soldier is taken in Gaza, Hezbollah do something. And this is, this is what I find very interesting. They don't go blindly attacking Israel. They don't do it in a way that is uh, unplanned. They did something, and this really comes back to what you and Saul have talked about these last few um, weeks and last few programs, this changing of the image of the IDF, this confidence, this overconfidence that would bleed into complacency, 
you know, the Entebbe raid, the mythology of the success of Mossad, the, the mythology of the success of Shin Bet, the mythology of the success of the IDF in the 67 war in Yom Kippur and at other times. It had led to this, it had led to this complacency. But what's striking about the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah is that frankly, Hezbollah outplanned and outfought the IDF. And that is what's so striking. So, so what actually were the IDF trying to achieve when they uh, reacted to this provocation? The Hezbollah had planned that they were going to carry out an operation. Their leader, Hassan Nasrullah, had, had warned it in relevant, many, many times. But the point was they knew exactly, they could predict what the IDF would do. They could predict that the IDF would come in hard to try and respond to that border incident. They pr could predict that the IDF would send its navy off the border, off the, uh, the shoreline of Beirut. They could predict that the tanks would follow. And at each stage, Hezbollah had planned for this. And what did Hezbollah want to do? They wanted to put huge pressure onto, the, onto Israel. They wanted to show that they were a meaningful uh, fighting force. And they wanted to show that that peace line, it is only a peace line. It's not an international border between Lebanon and Israel. It is just an agreed withdrawal line from previous conflicts that that was still, that they still claimed advance into Israeli territory. And what they did is they raided, they took a, uh, they, there was a skirmish, a, a jeep, two jeeps, two Humvees were attacked. Uh, and two soldiers, believed to be alive by the ADF, were grabbed, just like Gilad Shalit had been taken, and they disappeared across the, across the border. And this is a predictability. This is where Hezbollah showed something which I think is pertinent to 2023 in Gaza. They knew exactly what the IDF would do. They'd chosen that location for that operation. They knew that the Israelis would then send a tank, tanks in immediately, and they were, they'd already pre-positioned mines along the one road. They chose that one location because there was one mountain road that the tanks could use. A tank went in, boom. Another four dead soldiers, another four dead IDF soldiers in the tank, the entire tank crew killed. And Hezbollah had then set up a, a firing position on that mine, mine location. So when another rescue team went in, another fatality. So hold on, this is, Hezbollah had, had, had sort of predicted what um, the IDF would do. So what, what's the next stage? Air attacks. Well, Israel, uh, Hezbollah had spent two years digging in their position, so they were safe from air attacks. Naval attacks, they sent their flagship, the Israeli Navy sent their flagship in uh, coastal waters off Beirut, thinking that, you know, this is a territory we've used before, we've been very comfortable here. You'll remember, some of your listeners will remember that in 1973, the Israeli Navy deployed Ehud Barak and others, but Ehud Barak dressed as a woman and a commando raid onto the shoreline of Beirut to go and carry out an operation. And uh, so this was an area they're very comfortable in, and suddenly, bam, Hezbollah fired a, a Chinese cruise missile that almost sank that ship, killing four crew. So again, another setback. So the whole the point I'm trying to make is that the lessons learned from this, this war, this relatively short but very painful war for the IDF, was that their enemies had worked out how they behave and they have therefore to tread so cautiously. If we then go on beyond the naval thing, they then sent their tanks in, and you'll remember because you've covered the, the uh, many of the skirmishes between Israel and Lebanon, that the physical geographical feature of the Litani River is the line that they wanted to go to. It was a river, it cuts deep, makes a great valley, and that was the line that they, the tanks were going to go to. Guess what? Hezbollah had anticipated that. They had pre-positioned mines, they had pre-positioned tunnels where their soldiers armed with anti-tank missiles, and so they lost, I believe, 20 tanks, which, at a, which was a rate of attrition 
that I don't think the IDF have ever suffered, including in Yom Kippur, uh, in, in such a short time. So at every stage, their military tactical responses were anticipated by the enemy. And that's the important lesson, I believe, for, for, for what's going on in Gaza today. There's an echo that's very loud, really, from that time is the damage that was done to uh, Lebanese infrastructure for no direct reason that one can see in terms of the goal of trying to destroy Hezbollah. So the airport is bombed, if I remember correctly, power plants were bombed, etc. So the whole sort of southern part of the country was uh, suffering, not, not to the extent to which uh, the Gaza civil population is suffering now, but certainly uh, there was a lot of kind of, you know, pretty random bombing the whole areas of, uh, or a whole district of, of southern Beirut. Sort of Hezbollah stronghold was was pretty much um, raised to the ground. So what do you think they were trying to do there? Um, clearly it didn't work because you know, Hezbollah is still there. Why do you think they're still doing that now? Well, if you'll forgive that clumsy analogy, that boxing, punching at shadows uh, in Gaza when Gilad Shalit was taken, which was you, you can't find your target, so you lash out at what you can and civilians die and civilian infrastructure gets destroyed. Exactly the same in Lebanon. Remember, two IDF soldiers on the battlefield have disappeared. They were the ones grabbed. I must uh, flag up that it's important to remember that neither of these men were returned alive. They were believed to have been killed in combat, but their human remains were returned many months, in fact, two years later. But the point was the anger of the IDF, the Israeli state, remember, Israel is predicated on a safe haven, a safe place for Jews. We, the Jewish soldiers have been lost. They have to be fought. And the, the, the punching is very wanton. And we know this in Gaza, not just in today, but Operation Dreidel in 2009, Operation Summer Rains, Operation Autumn Clouds, Operation Winter This. It's the same methodology is used, which is you know, the rules of engagement are loosened. You're right that the infrastructure in Beirut, I remember going to the airport, Rafi Career International Airport, was unusable. Getting down to the south was very, very difficult because all the bridges were blown. So we would worm our way through the Shuf Mountains, finding little passes, knowing that at any time you came out under, away from tree cover, that the vehicle you're in has been picked up by drones and there's some person with a joystick in, in the north of Tel Aviv who's, who's watching you and you've got to see, are you or are you not perceived to be a threat? It was a very peculiar war and a very intense personal experience and the civilian count i have to say was terrible on the lebanese side the count from human rights watch was 1200 dead civilians and if i could give you a personal uh, anecdote i arrived in sur on uh, you know in the first sort of 10 days sur the town also known as as tyre uh, and famously the Phoenician capital, a place of great sort of, you know, history and cultural resonance and importance. And I arrived and it, coming in past bomb craters on the road, past down bridges, past infrastructure, burning infrastructure, and no, no one on the streets because of the, the, the risk. And I got to the central hospital and there was silence apart from ding, 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 ding. It was a tinsmith. And I went across and said, what, what, what's the tinsmith doing? He was tapping away like some from some folktale. He was tapping numbers into little copper plates. And those numbers were going to be attached to shrouded figures, civilians who'd been killed. They had to get them into a mass grave. And so number 32 was associated with this family member, and number 33. And they were creating the conditions for burying people in a mass grave. And these were civilians, 100 odd dead in that particular town. It was summer, the mortuary wasn't working. There were no power plants, as you just said, Patrick. So, Yes, the parallels with Gaza in terms of civilian count. The ratio was, I think, 200 dead 
Israeli soldiers, 1,200 dead Lebanese civilians. And the count for Hezbollah, the actual military, was always very disputed. Human Rights Watch came out with a count of 250 dead Hezbollah. Israel said 600. My instinct would be that the first number is more accurate. But the point is that when Israel responds, the rules of engagement are sufficiently lax that civilians get killed. And importantly, it's not just civilians. There was a United Nations observation post dating from 1948. So it's been there for more than half a century on a hilltop on the Israel-Lebanon border, which was bombed by the IDF, killing four United Nations observers. And done so at a time when the UN were ringing the IDF. 14 times they rang them and said, stop bombing in this area. It's on your maps. It's been there 60 years. So you've got to stop. And uh, Israel continued. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force, there were investigations and reports later that came later. But bottom line was that the rules of engagement are sufficiently lax that a UN bright painted white, a huge structure, been on maps for 50 years, can, get be, can be blown up and four United Nations military observers are killed. Uh, so that's the, when the rules of engagement are, are dictated by, by, on the Israeli side, civilians do die. And we're seeing that, of course, in Gaza. Well, that was fascinating. Do join us for the second half when Tim will talk about how the 2006 episode relates to what's going on in Gaza today. Welcome back. Well, this is what Tim had to say next. Um, I think the outcome of the war from a Hezbollah point of view, this is something that uh, I think Western audiences find it quite hard to get their heads around, was that this was a, a great victory, even though life had been very made very, very unpleasant for the Lebanese population, who they are supposed to actually gain uh, sustenance from, gain support from, you know, they're the people that sustain them. Yet, despite the civilian losses, the fact that all their preparations had used up all their munitions, uh, basically, the Israelis have done a, a good job in, in, at least for the time being, putting back the Hezbollah sort of war capability by a couple of years. But the much more important objective of actually weakening or destroying Hezbollah hasn't, hasn't been achieved at all because a couple of years later, they're back again. Um, so from a, from a Hezbollah point of view, you can see why that might be seen as a success and from the rather perverse perspective of people like Hezbollah and Hamas. But from an Israeli point of view, uh, it was a failure, wasn't it, Tim? I mean, I think that's how it was regarded. As usual, the old rule, if you fail to win, you lose, actually applies. But what lessons did Israel draw from that experience, and the IDF in particular? I think it was a big shock for the state of Israel, for the people and for their military commanders, because as I said, earlier and they they were pretty much outsmarted and outplanned at every stage they couldn't you know in a what you know what the military commanders to talk today about a kinetic in, incident of an individual skirmish they win because they've got air power they've got drones they've got but the point was they were outsmarted and that i think has significant implications this is 2006 remember between 2006 and today, we have had other Gaza operations, most famously 2009 Operation Dreidel, uh, the Hebrew word for a cast lead, a little toy, and then, of course, the 2014 war in Gaza. But what's striking to me is that on each of those occasions, the IDF have gone into Gaza scared they're going to make the same mistakes as they did in the 2006 war. Those lessons, I think, they genuinely scarred the conscience 
of the um, the IDF. Their military commanders had several lost their jobs. Uh, they took tanks into areas where they were literally drawn into a trap where the valley sides were too steep. They lost men. They made significant tactical mistakes. But more importantly, what is Israel? Israel is a place set up as a safe place for Jews, as you, you rightly said in the earlier programs in this on battleground, you know, the pogroms, the suffering, the, the, the persecution, this is where, this is the whole predicate of Israel. And if you can't keep your Jewish population safe, then, you know, it's fundamentally, it's existentially, there's a failure at your heart. And in those northern areas, we have to remember something you haven't mentioned, which is that both in Gaza and in the area we're talking about in southern Lebanon, missiles raining down on Israeli civilians, innocent Israeli civilians going about their business, chicken farmers, kids going to school, grandparents drinking tea in the garden. They are under attack. And in, the, in terms of a military, um, measurable military success, a tactical success, did Israel stop the missiles from landing? Well, no, they didn't. There was a ceasefire for a period, but then they came back and they're landing there today. And similarly across the Gaza-Israel uh, frontier. So for me, what's so striking about the 2006 war is that it changes that complacency. It's the first chink, it's the first slow puncher in this reputation that the IDF have for absolute invulnerability. And it makes their commanders even more cautious. It unleashes, it makes those rules of engagement that you, we just described. I mean, I talked about the tinsmith, mass graves. I mean, there were bodies in a in an industrial container with a refrigerator uh, that had failed because of no power. This was a this was thing that should be looking after ice cream. It had bodies. It was it was quite it was it was the tenth circle of hell to to go in there and report it. But these these are the conditions in which those rules of engagement were loose in two thousand and six. They are considerably more loose today. And I say this because if you look at the operations going in as the ground troops have gone into Gaza, there. The caution that the soldiers are, the units on the ground are showing, are displaying, are directly connected to what they found in, in, in Lebanon in 2006. They went across the border in 2006 and Hezbollah had pre-arranged, pre pre-dug fox uh, holes in the ground and their soldiers were in them. And when the soldiers, when the IDF advanced, these guys popped up and shot them from behind. I mean, it was Viet Cong, it was, it was 1967, 1971 again, and the IDF had never experienced that before. So they're going into northern Gaza, they're going into Khan Yunus, they're going into Rafa, across the frontier that you know so well, that you've described so accurately and so cleanly, clearly to your listeners. But they are going in incredibly, incredibly cautiously. House by house isn't like clearing a house, entering a room. They're leveling the house blowing the house. So now, it was a very in interesting incident that um, uh, some of you will have picked up on, of course, the incident when the three hostages who tried to make themselves known to IDF soldiers, in the investigation that we are, and I have to say we are, it's the early days of the full investigation as to exactly what happened, but, but it would appear that an attack dog, a, a dog being used by IDF forces, which is a very common procedure for IDF, you send in a dog with a camera, which is giving live feed, a live update of what's going on goes into a location, the dog is killed by Hamas soldiers, troops, operatives, gunmen inside this location, but the camera lives on and the camera picks up the audio of Hebrew voices calling for help. And that is not picked up by the IDF. That's not heard by their intelligence cells for days, for days later until it's too late, until these three guys have approached an IDF position saying, shouting in Hebrew, waving flags, but 
so lax are the rules of engagement for the IDF, so heightened the sense of paranoia that it would appear that they were that those were not heard, and they were killed. Now this reminds me of you know it sounds so sounds so strange, but you know when you do rescue someone. It's a very, very vulnerable position for the rescuers when that person approaches. And if you know, if I could make a collection that Patrick might ring a bell with, in, in Bosnia in 1995, a United States Air Force F-16 was shot down, and, and, and the pilot survives, and they go and they go and they go and get him. His name was Scott O'Grady, if I remember correctly, Captain Scott O'Grady. And it sounds a bit Hollywood, but how he behaved was not Hollywood. It was Keystone Cops. He got it all wrong when it came to you know referring on his radios to where to be picked up, yada yada. But the point of the story is this that when the team that went to pick him up, which was a team from the USS Kearsarge, it was a United States Marine Corps amphibious, they went in, helicopters, Cobra attack helicopters flying, they touched down, he ran towards them waving a gun, waving a Colt pistol, which is the last thing you should ever do, because that means, that suggests you're hostile, they have, you know, they have no idea. So they didn't kill him, they just knocked him out. A sergeant in the back of the uh, the sea knight just punched him in the jaw and knocked him clean out and, took his, and disarmed him. The, but the point of the story is this, that in a situation when you are being rescued, it might sound easy. Oh, trust me, I'm but when people are so heightened, when the rules of engagement are so loose, then the IDF soldiers who were receiving these guys, they have no idea, have they been turned? What are they carrying? What are they wearing? Are, you know, have they been coerced? Is there a bead on them from somewhere else? They're being forced to carry a bomb, a grenade. So the point of this long preamble is that the experience of 2006 reset the dial tactically for the IDF. And we've seen that in all of the Gaza operations, Dreidel in 2008-9, 2014, various skirmishes, and most importantly today, because we have a civilian death count, which is, you know, I, I covered Gaza for a number of years and, 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 and I, was, I felt I was sort of you know, fairly worn to these, you know, some of the horrors, but you know, it is, I'm now struggling to deal with these numbers, thousands and thousands of children, you know, turning on your social media feed. And that is happening because that's how the rules of engagement are set. Do you think this will end any better for the IDF than 2006 did? I do not. I do not. You've used the phrase quite, you know, and it, it's cynical, but it's important to know that, you know, this is how it's mowing the grass, getting rid of some Hamas, not getting rid of all, ripping up all the grass. For me, I see it as as a slightly, if, you, if we're allowed to have sort of slightly clumsy analogies, I see it as you have a house with rising damp, you know, and this thing, this problem manifests itself and you might, you know, rip out a floorboard and rip out a skirting board and repaint it, but it's going to just come back. It's going to come back. So what, what is our, what is the strategic goal of the idea of operation in Gaza? It is to take out Hamas. It is to destroy Hamas. Is that achievable? In my opinion, having known Gaza and comparing with southern Lebanon, having seen how they tried to destroy Hezbollah, the answer to that question is, in my mind, is no. They have no realistic chance of doing that whatsoever. What they do have is a chance to have some sort of retribution, some sort of display, this boxing gloves flailing at ghosts. Um, and that's really what we're seeing. But in terms of the strategic goal, I don't think it's achievable. And if you'll forgive me, I. Um, at the beginning of the Gaza war, I sat down and rewatched a, 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 an amazing documentary shot and released in 2012. It's a very simple premise. It's called Gatekeepers, The Gatekeepers. It's six men talking to camera and it's captivating because those six men are the, are the men who ran the internal security of the Israeli state, the Shin Bet, otherwise known as Shabak. And these 
the perspective of these of these men covered from 1967 to 2011. So an extraordinary swathe of time. They're all very, very serious intelligence operatives with field experience, more importantly, command level, dealing with politicians, dealing with how, what can you realistically achieve? What can we do here? I mean, yes, some of the stories, the sexy stories about a blowing up a mobile phone is put to the ear of a bad person who blows up in this. That's quite sort of Fowler-like, forgive me if you can do egg segue back to what Saul referenced, that extraordinary Netflix drama. It is very dramatic, but, but they also sit their drones pretty high in their mind's eye. What do we, what can we achieve here? And what was striking, all six of them, they all raised their hands and said, we can win the battles, but we can't win the war. Or as one put it, so, so, so we have tactics, we have no strategy. And what I'm seeing in Gaza today is tactics. It's blood count. It's getting some Hamas people, of course, it is, but it's sending a signal, but it's not a strategy. And you're, the rising damp will come back. Now it's the beginning of a new year. We'd like to glimpse a little glow of hope on the dark horizon here, Tim. You live in South Africa now. Uh, you've seen the place uh, transform from a society that is still bubbling with, with terrible memories of oppression, injustice, etc. And you've seen people rise to the occasion. You've seen great men who've actually managed to turn the situation around. So it's now a relatively happy society. What can you see in South Africa that might be applicable to what's going on in Israel-Palestine, which might give listeners a little bit of hope for the months and the years ahead? What I see here, I think you're referencing quite rightly Nelson Mandela, but he wasn't alone. There's Desmond Tutu of his generation, and there are various others before through history. And what, what, I, what strikes me is having not just covered wars in the Middle East, or indeed I've alluded to Bosnia, and but other wars in Africa, is that you know, wars ultimately end when people talk. And for those voices to be heard, for that discussion to be had of a sense of moderation, and you need to have people, the extremists at the edge need to be marginalized and left behind. And we agglomerate towards something in the middle. And uh, let me just give you an example from history, forgive me, which predates Mandela. A hundred odd years ago, I'm in a country where there were freedom fighters shooting British soldiers on a vast scale. There was a huge Anglo-Boer war and the senior commander of the Boers, the guys shooting British soldiers, committed to shooting British soldiers, working with his entire being and all of his kin and his family to kill British soldiers was a man called Jan Smuts. He signs a peace treaty in 1901 and a few years later, he's marching under the flag that he was shooting out a few years before. He's watching for the British and he goes on a journey, a personal journey. So is there hope? Yes. Nelson Mandela, he was a, a freedom fighter. He used military force. He went on a personal journey. And what one hopes is that within the Palestinian community and significantly within the Israeli community, that there are people who see that moderation is the only way forward, is the only accommodation that Hamas or that all Palestinians are not involved in a death cult, to use a very powerful kind of expression used by Yuval Harari in his analysis of this. And he's a very liberal Israeli and a very prominent one now because of his writing of Sapiens, etc. And he says that you know, this Hamas group is a death cult. That might be true of Hamas, but you yourself, in a very nuanced and important way, described how the West Bank had a social structure which is more willing to compromise, which has traditional anchors that wasn't as disrupted as the Gaza social structure. And there you have a chance 
but it has to be built on trust. Uh, you again in this program in the battleground, you've re referred to Israeli freedom fighters who've gone on that journey and changed. People have the capacity; they have to. And for me, images of dead children, I can't think of anything more powerful to persuade than that to persuade the moderates to come together and marginalize the extremists. Britain has got a history of that as well. You know, we had moderation at the middle and the headbangers and the extremists get left behind on the side and marginalized and ignored, not, not silenced or arrested, but just simply atrophied. They just slough off. So for me, it requires the vision to see the value of moderation to see the value of peace, to see the value of comp and, and the recognition that compromise is not weakness. And I repeat, those six extraordinary Shin Bet voices, these are men not known to compromise. These are people who have ordered some extraordinary things. I urge every uh, listener of the battleground to, to just consider maybe sitting, sitting up and watching the gatekeepers. Because these are tough men and they've been in the fire and in that fire, what's been tempered inside them is a desire for peace and compromise rather than the flames and the sharp edge of a blade that will go and kill yada yada yada. So um, that's, I think we're all capable of it. Every human is. The Israeli population, the Israeli electorate, the Israeli uh, political society, political class, the Israeli person who's selling you a newspaper on the, in the street corner when I lived in, I lived there for five years. Fabulous, rich, sophisticated, they've got all, and I just wish that some sort on both sides of moderation could predominate. Tim, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Happy New Year to you and yours. Well, I thank you and I hope that we can perhaps get together again and talk about Gaza, this operation in the past tense, because as you say, it is just so shocking and so current and so actual. We want it to be in the past tense. We want it to be a building block to something better. Hear, 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 hear. Well, there was lots to reflect on there. Some of it quite controversial, but this is a very, very controversial area. No doubt we'll have some responsible listeners do let's have your thoughts on that and any questions. Do mail them to the regular email address. That's podbattleground at gmail.com. 